This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton coming to you with your live local news via the WORT studios in downtown Madison. And it's Veterans Day, so thanks for those who have served. Here are tonight's headlines. The State Assembly passed their version of redistricting maps this morning, one more step in the slog towards a resolution. The State Assembly finalized their GOP-drawn state legislative map that keeps many existing boundaries from 2011, as well as a map for Wisconsin's eight congressional districts. Both maps passed the legislature's other chambers, the Senate, earlier this week, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. The legislature also rejected maps proposed by the nonpartisan People's Map Commission, a redistricting committee created and championed by Governor Tony Evers. Those maps got a bipartisan loss, with Democrats also voting against them. Resolution to the state's redistricting process is broadly expected to be resolved in the courts, but which courts is also up for a partisan debate. Republicans want the state Supreme Court to redraw voting maps for the next decade, while Democrats want the matter resolved in federal court. An anonymous aide to Michael Gableman, the former Wisconsin Supreme Court justice who is now heading up a probe into Wisconsin's 2020 presidential election, has been revealed. Reporting from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel uh, now has the last name of a woman, Carol, who is assisting the Wisconsin GOP into a taxpayer-funded investigation, election investigation, to the tune of $676,000. The Journal Sentinel reports today that the aide's name is Carol Mathis, uh, a business and insurance attorney based in California, who's active with the Federalist Society, a nationwide organization of conservative and libertarian lawyers. Other aides assisting Gableman are still anonymous. The State's Department of Public Instruction is under fire for creating an equity office without including any people of color or seeking input from people of color internally. The new office within the State Education Agency was created in September to examine equity issues, but people of color within the agency told local news outlet Madison 365 that the decision to reassign a current DPI staffer was hierarchical and unilateral, and that those who had advocated for an equity office were not listened to. Jill Underly, head of the Department of Public Instruction, wrote last month that it was an urgent priority to create the office and declined to dismantle it. Since then, the agency has somewhat revised its response, saying that they are engaged in restorative justice practices to reconsider the office and its staffers. Veterans homes in Wisconsin are facing pandemic-induced staffing shortages, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. Wisconsin Secretary of Veterans Affairs Mary Kolar says that she's expecting to lose even more staffing when federal rules take effect by the end of the year, specifically federal rules mandating that all veterans home staff receive the COVID-19 vaccine. She says a veteran's home in Chippewa Falls has temporarily suspended visits as it deals with COVID-19 cases among staff. Meanwhile, the veteran's home in Union Grove is not taking new admissions and is partially shut down due to new COVID-19 cases. The share individuals are paying in state and local taxes has dropped over the last two decades in Wisconsin more than any other state according to a new report by the Wisconsin Policy Forum. The report shows that the most of the decline in the taxes people pay is due to cuts in both individual taxes, as well as the proportion of income paid in property taxes. Corporate tax collections are also up. However, the report says predicting future trends will be difficult due to the unknown impacts of the COVID crisis. And now we move on to today's top stories. An amendment to add additional evaluation of bus stops in the city's bus rapid transit project narrowly failed last night as the Madison Common Council continued its work on the budget. News Director Shali Pittman has more. 
The amendment would have directed city staff to study alternatives to putting certain bus rapid transit stations on Upper State Street. It also would have required city staff to present design geometry and station locations for bus rapid transit to the city's boards, committees, commissions, and common council for approval. The amendment itself was a watered-down version of an earlier budget amendment, which would have withheld funding to plan bus rapid transit until the council approved a separate redesign of the city's bus routes. That separate project is called Network Redesign, an ongoing process to replan all city bus routes. Some alders, led by Council President Abbas, have feuded with Mayor Rhodes-Conway about the interconnectedness between the two projects. Tom Lynch is the city transportation director. The network redesign is a, a totally separate effort and a totally separate uh, timetable. And it's, I'm going to also say that it's more in its infancy. Right now, the, the design of that network redesign is fluid and there's quite a bit of opportunity for alders and residents to, to weigh in and change it. We could actually implement the BRT right now and uh, just make very modest modifications to our existing uh, transit network and that would be fine. However, we have experienced a considerable amount of complaints and dissatisfaction with the existing network with the number of times, let's say, people of color have to transfer, the low frequencies. And I'm actually gonna say the range of service. You know, if you have to get at the hospital at five o'clock, you can't get there on transit. And so uh, the network redesign has similar objectives, but it's a separate project. Preliminary drafts for network redesign are slated to be released at the beginning of 2022. From there, more input with a final vote from the Madison Common Council expected to come around March. Last night, Alders also sought clarification of Mayor Rhodes-Conway's claim that the amendment could threaten federal funding of bus rapid transit. I don't think uh, kill is the correct word. It means that we have to compete for the funding again. If we change the route, then we need to get uh, the route reevaluated by the FTA, and it's a competitive evaluation. And so, you know, we probably will score well. Uh, we're, we're one out of six applicants that were recommended for funding out of 35. He adds that a delay could threaten an agreement with the state. But one of the most important stakeholders that we have to have um, a project agreement with before they will sign our construction agreement is with the state of Wisconsin for the use of um, East Washington. You know, the state of Wisconsin does not have to allow us to do that. I'm going to say we've been in negotiations with them. And initially, they were actually pretty resistant. And um, more recently, I'm going to say they've been very cooperative. But, you know, political dynamics uh, change at the state level uh, as well as the federal level. Alder Mike Revere, who represents downtown Madison, including State Street, was one of the sponsors of the amendment, along with Council President Abbas. Alder Revere characterized the substitute amendment as a compromise. It is absolutely a compromise. It is modest, admittedly. Uh, I heard loud and clear, and I totally understand why, that the original amendment was an overreach was blunt, uh, was uh, alarming to, to many in our community. Budget amendments need 11 votes to pass, and this amendment ultimately failed. But it failed by just one vote, with 10 alders voting for it, 9 voting against, and 1 alder abstaining. Also last night, the council approved spending a quarter of a million dollars to buy four new squad cars for Madison police officers. Those patrol cars are slated to be used in the town of Madison some of which will be absorbed into the city of Madison next year. And the council approved an amendment that would keep the Monroe Street Library open for five days a week. Currently, the Monroe Street Library is only open on Tuesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. With this approval, the Monroe Street Library will also be open on Mondays and Wednesdays. By the time you're hearing this, the council will have resumed budget negotiations for the third consecutive night. They started meeting at 530 Tonight, the council has several amendments in the operating budget to consider, including a proposal to reappropriate $82,000 from the police department to slightly expand the CARES Mental Health First Responders program. The council will also weigh whether to redirect public health money earmarked for gun violence prevention to the nonprofit group Focused Interruption. Previous nights of budget work have followed a self-imposed rule to end at midnight, but there's no such cap on the meeting tonight, and the council will only finish when both the operating and capital budgets are decided. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Sholly Pittman.
Last week, the Dane County Department of Waste and Renewables submitted a possible plan for the next landfill. WRT reporter Nate Carlin has the story. Dane County's landfill is nearing the end of its lifetime and is projected to fill up completely by 2030. This means that the county has to begin the process of finding a new landfill soon, since the planning for a new landfill takes about 10 years. Last week, the county's Department of Waste and Renewables revealed the first possible site they are pursuing. It's the Yahara Hills Golf Course, directly across Highway 12 from the current landfill. The department's director, John Welch, explains the advantages. There's a lot of design or um, locational criteria that go into a landfill. There's things such as geology, uh, hydrology, setbacks from neighbors and private wells. So with all of those things said, the short answer is that this is the most ideal site. Absolutely. The proposed campus would be more than just a landfill, with possible new facilities designed for organic composting and mattress recycling. It had come with educational and recreational opportunities as well, and a plan to turn part of the landfill into a, quote, sustainability campus. The proposed campus would be able to take trash through 2045. Roxanne Winks, the deputy director of the Dane County Department of Waste and Renewables, says the site could last even longer than that. We want to phase this site appropriately. So one of the really interesting phenomenons in landfill phasing and engineering is that oftentimes they are planned in 15-year increments, and they don't all fit together very well. So what we would like to do is look at this site as a much bigger picture, right, as the next 70 to 100 years of our waste management. The land is currently owned by the city of Madison, where it operates a 36-hole golf course. The proposal would require the county buying the land from the city and would eventually reduce the size of the golf course down to 18 holes. But all of this is very preliminary. First, the county needs the approval from the city to begin doing testing to make sure the golf course is an appropriate site. This includes soil borings and an archaeological survey. Even on the most ambitious timelines, the golf course would be able to operate normally through 2024. Eric Knepp, superintendent of the City of Madison Parks, says that the project aligns with the city's goals for the area. So the number one concern I have is community park space for the southeast side as it develops. Yahara was originally bought and contemplated to make sure that was accommodated as the city grew that way. I believe in every proposal, every conversation that I've heard that is met in the long term, like 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 years from now, there's land sufficient to have a quality community park in that location. The Yahara Hills Golf Course has a troubled history. A recent task force that worked on the financial stability of the city's golf courses considered closing the course entirely. The final recommendation was to reduce the number of holes. The courses are prone to flooding and are behind on the routine maintenance required to keep the space viable long term. But the city says Yahara Hills Golf Course is also the most commonly used course for golfers of color. The proposed landfill site is also near the Ho-Chunk Casino, which supports the project. In a letter to policymakers, the Ho-Chunk Casino emphasized the possible collaborations between the landfill and the casino, as well as the prospect of economic growth in the area. In particular, the letter underlined a shared sense of land stewardship and an interest in sustainable energy technologies like the landfill gas they currently use to power a maintenance vehicle. It's the very beginning of the plan for a new landfill, as various aspects head to committees this winter. If approved, construction on the additional landfill would start in the next few years, well before 2030 when the county's current landfill reaches its capacity. Reporting for WORT News and Wastelands, this is Nate Carlin. It's now 6.19 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Every other Thursday, WORT contributor Jonah Chester sits down with Tom Kamenick, president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, to discuss open records and open government for a segment we call Transparency Talk. 
This week, Kamenik and Chester discuss when, how, and why school boards can go into closed meetings. And a quick note that this conversation isn't specific legal advice, so seek an attorney's assistance if you have difficulty with open records or open government. It is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line, as is tradition, by our open government expert, Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how are you holding up this week? Jonah, I'm doing good. How about yourself? I'm doing great. I uh, I just got back from a few days of um, much-needed vacation. I'm rested. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to jump into the uh, somewhat controversial topic we've picked for today's episode, and that is the intersection of mask mandates and open government meetings. Uh, let's get a little bit of background here. Flashback to late summer, August 25th, the Oshkosh uh, school board was meeting to uh, discuss mask mandates and what have you at a school board meeting. Take me from there, Tom. Give me some more of the background for today's episode before we get into the conversation. So there was a protest held before the meeting, and then uh, when the meeting time came, some of the attendees refused to wear the masks, even though it was district policy to wear masks inside all buildings, including at meetings. Police were there. Sounds like they were telling people to wear masks, but they weren't arresting anybody or removing anybody. And so the board president says, hey, we're not going to hold this meeting if you don't mask up, The people don't mask up. And so the board leaves. So far, so good. There's no open meetings law problems with that. But what they do when they leave is they all walked into the superintendent's office and they met in there for about a half hour before coming back. And the board president tells everybody, hey, we're postponing the meeting. We're going to hold it virtually at some future date. So what do you think might be illegal there, Jonah? Well, Tom, I did my required reading for today's episode, so I know that when the board met for that mysterious 30 minutes, that was where things sort of went awry. Had the board president cut it right there and said, all right, we're rescheduling for, I don't know, later this month, for example, and knock on into that closed session, things would have been just peachy keen, right? That's exactly right. That closed session was illegal. So this week, uh, I filed an open meetings law complaint with the Winnebago County District Attorney. And before we talk about what's in this complaint, I want to make clear what it's not about. The complaint is not about masks or vaccine mandates or how the district can enforce a mask requirement. It's not even about what a board like a school board can do about disruptive people at a meeting. It's about their illegally going into a closed session. So they, they basically did two things wrong here. First, they didn't follow the proper procedure. The, the state statutes say that if you want to go into closed session, you have to do things by the book, by the letter, very clear set of steps. So the board did not first announce, we are going into a closed session now. And they did not announce which statutory exemption they were proceeding under. They didn't announce the topic they would be discussing in the closed session. And they didn't make a motion and, a, and get a second and then take a, a roll call vote to go into closed session. All, all of those steps are required by the statute. Yeah. So and I'd like to reiterate that because, you know, mask mandates, mask requirements, masking up in, in government meetings. It's a very controversial topic here, but I'm just going to underline what Tom said right now. We're not debating the merits of mask mandates or vaccine mandates or what have you here. Personally, I'm a proponent of mask mandates and vaccine uh, vaccine requirements and what have you. But the question here is the the question of the state's open meeting law precisely, you know. Did the, did the school board violate that when they went into closed session? Tom here is arguing yes. So take me from there, Tom. Give me a little bit more detail here on, you know, what the school board has said since then and, and take me from here? Well, according to reporting in some of the local papers and uh, television news stations, the district has released a, a fairly anodyne, boring response that they're looking into it and they take their responsibilities very seriously. But currently everything's in the, the district attorney's lap right now. So what happens next is that this DA reviews the complaint and he has 20 days to decide whether or not to bring charges against the board and its members. Now, he can seek up to $300 in fines against the members, but if the district attorney doesn't bring charges, then the person who filed the complaint is allowed to do so, to proceed as a private attorney general to enforce the law. 
So talk to me a little bit more. What would have been an acceptable reason to go into a closed session such as that? Let's say they had followed all the all the procedures to call for that during the meeting. What are acceptable items that they can go into closed session to discuss? Yeah, there's a whole list of them in the statutes. And the statute says that if you don't fall under one of these categories, you can't go into closed session. There's no kind of catch-all category for other good reasons. It has to fit under one of the listed ones. And and there's a fair number of them, but they're typically things like uh, discussing the performance of one employee or uh, de- debating a, a bargaining strategy to, to engage in some purchases without giving away to the other side what your bargaining strategy is, or to discuss litigation with your uh, with your attorneys, with the with the with the board's attorneys. And you can't go into closed session unless you fit under one of those exemptions. And there's no exemption for discussing a mask policy or discussing what to do about not mask people or discussing whether to postpone or continue the meeting that they're having. And nothing on the agenda for the night either was anything that would have allowed a closed session. So although to be honest, we don't know exactly what it was they discussed for a half hour. We suspect it was not the weather, it was not the... Uh, the Packers and Aaron Rodgers, but it was likely something having to do with their responsibilities as board members, and that would be Ill- illegal. Man, with that Aaron Rodgers mention, we're just we're just tacking up the controversial topics here today. Uh, so let let me pass another hypothetical by you. Let's say the school board had temporarily suspended operation. They they called the meeting and said, we're not meeting in public here right now. If they had gone on, let's say, like a Zoom call and broadcast that out live, would that have also been acceptable? I get that's a hypothetical situation here, but, but humor my imaginary made-up world. So in an emergency situation, they can provide shorter notice, but it still has to be at least two hours. So if they wanted to, they could have said, uh, we're we're uh, canceling the meeting, we're postponing it right now, or we're, we're going into recess, and we're going to reconvene in two and a half hours time over Zoom. Within, and we're going to discuss these topics. And if they had gotten that notice out to the public in all the proper ways, which uh, typically involves sending notice to local newspapers, putting it up on their website, placing it in physical locations, then they could have uh, held it right away. Otherwise, the normal 24-hour a notice requirement would have applied. So talk to me more about the big picture here. Why is this in particular an issue? Yeah, the, the whole problem here is, like I mentioned earlier, we don't know exactly what they talked about when they went into the superintendent's office, but that's the point. That's the point of the open meetings law is that when governmental bodies meet and discuss things, they're supposed to do it out in public so people know what's being discussed and know what's being decided. And currently we don't have a clue until... Uh, until the district attorney starts investigating and talking to these uh, representatives on the school board or until somebody files an action in court. So you mentioned it there a minute ago, but let's circle back around. So we have a nice clean narrative arc here. What happens next? You mentioned a few times it's sort of now in the district attorney's hands on the next steps. Walk me through those. Yeah, district attorney takes a look uh, and decides whether or not to file charges in court. Just as a matter of, of practice, I've filed several of these around the state and I've watched many others, followed many others uh, that have been filed. And it's pretty rare for district attorneys to to actually file charges and spend the resources on this. And, and very often you'll get a response like, this is a little pithy, not what they actually say, but uh, it basically reads as, we're busy with crimes and murders and, and thefts and, and everything else like that. We don't have time for this. Uh, but it's a, it's a question of resources and what they want to focus their prosecution on. Often if they don't file a prosecution, they'll still sometimes write a letter to the uh, to the governing board at issue saying, hey, you, you've had some problems here. This, these were likely violations. You should not do this in the future. Uh, that would be a positive result. Uh, you know, we've gotten a lot of focus on this, a lot of attention paid to this story already. So we'd love to see even just a letter from the district attorney laying out uh, the mistakes they made and telling them you can't do that again. And then if the DA basically issues that letter, then it goes to you, right? Then you you take the next steps, you and your client you're representing in this case, if that if that does happen, right? Yeah, and a letter, a public admonishment might be enough for my client. My client might want to go ahead with uh, and continue with the prosecution. Don't know that at this time. Just anecdotally here, you mentioned it there a minute ago that district attorneys are often like, sorry, we're, we're busy, you know, prosecuting crime and what have you. How rare is it for a DA to like heavily weigh in on an open records or open government case like this? It's hard to say in in terms of percentages, but, you know, 
once every other month, once a month, maybe I'll, I'll read a story about a, a district attorney that issued that kind of a letter that investigated and found some violations, but, you know, basically said that like voluntary compliance in the future is sufficient. We don't need to uh, bring a prosecution to obtain compliance. And that's the overall goal. All right. Well, that does it for today's episode. We've run up on our time for this evening. Uh, I've been joined on the other end of the line, as always, by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Uh, Tom, thanks as always so much for taking time out of your day to chat with me. Glad to, Jonah. And remember, if you don't go, you won't know. It's going to be And you're listening to the handcrafted local news here on WORT. Pre-pandemic, it used to be that we would feature a journalist from Isthmus newspaper every week on Thursdays. Now that the Alt-Weekly is in a four-month of return to print, they're releasing papers monthly. WORT News Director Shali Pittman sat down with Isthmus senior reporter Dylan Brogan shortly before broadcast today. With me in the studio is Dylan Brogan, senior staff writer at Isthmus Newspaper. He has a new section in Isthmus called Tell Dylan, a news wrap of several local issues. Dylan, congratulations on your new news nook. Thank you. So this month's Tell Dylan was prescient as the first half is dedicated to Metro Transit's network redesign, which we talked about just a few minutes ago on this broadcast. Dylan, you talked to Tom Lynch, the city's transportation director, in October, and he said that network redesign may be an even bigger thing than BRT. Tell me about your conversation with Tom Lynch. Yes, it was a very long conversation, and uh, Tom Lynch is very good at slowly explaining all the complicated details, and this is complicated. So when BRT, it kind of was, we were headed down that path, right, of this bus rapid transit system, it became obvious that this whole, the whole bus network really needed to be redesigned if we were going to go the BRT route, right? So this network redesign, um, and the city likes to separate them out into two issues, but the backbone, the spine of of the BRT system is going to be a new, completely different transit network for all the buses in Madison. So bus rapid transit doesn't replace every bus in town. It's really just these core central lines that run more frequently, right? So in order to do that, um, the city started a parallel track of redesigning the whole network to accommodate this new system. So that uh, was very much up for debate and kind of caused some controversy during the budget meetings that happened this week, too. Absolutely. You describe it as a fundamental reorganization of everything relating to the well, bus Tom routes. Tom Lynch does, yes. <laughs> okay. And tell me, what does that fundamental reorganization mean? I mean, I think with the ongoing budget process, some alders and uh, perhaps members of the public are concerned about losing access to buses that come right outside of their door, right? So in your conversation, in your article, you kind of talk about two different network alternatives that were released in August. Um, yes, after working with the, the transportation planning board, which has been kind of the lead committee on this, and after spending a lot of money on a consultant um, that was approved by Alders and the mayor in the last budget. It struck me as uh, there are two extreme alternatives of what's possible, almost like two poles between this redesign. Yes. That- so, yeah. And remember, there's going to be public input process here, and we're kind of reaching Uh, a new phase of this total redesign. Every single route is going to change in the bus network. So everyone's going to have to relearn the whole thing. And I had some memorized. I'm a little upset about that. Yeah, well, you're going to have to forget it. And people... and it makes sense when you're um, you got all this federal money to install all these new buses with new platforms that are going to be running much more often. So basically, the city's process was we're going to come up with these two extremes. Both of them are both realistic. You know, this is what the city says, but um, they represent kind of two different ideologies almost. So there's the the ridership map. Now this map was designed to accommodate uh, hopefully as many riders with a bus line that is running frequently and often, but maybe further away. Now, the coverage map more 
aligns to what we have now, which is a, a system that relies on transfer points and is very good because, in some ways because it reaches a lot of areas of the city regardless of where they are geographically. But there's a downside to each one of them. So the ridership option would definitely, you'd have to walk further. Most people are going to have to walk a little bit further to a bus stop, but they're going to come more often. And the positive to that is, well, perhaps if it comes more often, that's actually more helpful than a bus that stops right outside your door but only comes once an hour. Now, uh, the coverage map, though, tries to align what we have now with uh, this new bus rapid transit system and does reach more neighborhoods. But there are definitely routes that are going to end and that some stops uh, in some neighborhoods on the periphery of the city are not going to have as good of coverage. But it, again, it comes down to what, do you, what is a better transit system? Buses that come more often but are further away or buses that come closer by but not as often. And you can kind of see why this is a polarizing issue. And Tom Lynch, uh, you know, the city's transit director, says up front this is going to cause waves. And it didn't really get up a lot of attention until like this week. This week. Absolutely. I've learned a lot about it. The article came out a week before. I, you know, I, we say in the intro that Isthmus now comes out once a month. So you, uh, you looked in your crystal ball and you saw this coming. So good job, Dylan. Yes, I frequently rely on crystal balls. (laughs) So what's next? You mentioned public input. The city is slated to release a draft proposal um, in early January 2022. uh, Get started by by looking at these alternatives. Well, it seems like they're going to come up with a a nice balance between these two quote-unquote extremes, right? We're not going to get the one that uh, increases ridership, uh, and we're not going to get the one that perhaps provides the most coverage to the most neighborhoods. And and that is a big part of the debate because there are certain, okay, it was a real effort, especially in the Soglin administration, to increase what's called equity routes. And that, mm-hmm. uh, like it or not, um, the core of the city has always been served fairly well. And it just, um, if you were on the Isthmus, buses were coming more often. It was more of an option to use for everyday use, mm-hmm. right? Where you, it was a real alternative to a car. But during the Saddam administration, you know, they made a real effort to make sure they were going to the periphery of the city. And that's uh, where, and uh, just how it works out, is that that is where people of color and other uh, and lower income folks are tend to be on the further edges of the city. So how do you provide good transit options for them? And that's this, really what's coming up for debate in January. We're going to get a map that hopefully balances out these two competing interest and finds like the best middle ground. That's what the city says. But um, even then, uh, there's going to be a big public input process. And in March, the city council will have to approve this as well. And, and what we saw this week was kind of trying to tie the BRT funding to this network map, and that ended up failing. Yeah, there's been a lot of discussion yes. over how related are the two projects. And in fairness, um, they're very they are, related. They are related. Yes. Right. <laughs> very, no, they wouldn't be doing the transit redesign if it if BRT wasn't coming. And I, I think last night I didn't put it in my story, but um, I think there was an ad- admittal that um, communication over network redesign, especially to policymakers, wasn't as great as it could have been. And so. that is something we hear on nearly every issue. Right? Isn't it? <laughs> That's true. That's it's why we're very, here. And I'm not trying to diminish the problem, but public input in city policies is doesn't seem to be enough. It's very these things. There, hey, there were a lot of meetings that people could attended, but this sort of flew under the radar. And you can see why people would be shocked by the change. But you know what? People sort of, once they see that their buses no longer, uh, you know, have the same route, that's when it becomes real to people and when they want to engage. So that is happening. Uh, and that will happen in January. And I think there can be a lot of public input that leads to some real changes in what ends up being the whole network redesign and, and what routes need to be prioritized and what neighborhoods should be and to make sure everyone is maybe not happy but can live with it. Another big, huge problem with public input, though, is what about the thousands of people that would use the bus system uh, if it ran faster but aren't using it now? That's a lot of people, too. Mm Mm-hmm from a lot of different communities and not just affluent ones. So how do you get them involved in a process that they don't even really know they're a part of yet? 
All right. Well, uh, we've certainly taken up enough time on this issue. Um, I look Way forward to much. covering this uh, in the in the future. Moving along to the next topic in the Tell Dylan News feature, you also write about a particular um, instance arising from the 12,500 Afghan asylum seekers currently living at the Fort McCoy military base in western Wisconsin. Now, uh, we're not going to talk about the institutional uh, you know, issues there. Um, we'll just say that many are still going through immigration paperwork to be resettled into permanent communities. And, um, and it's been kind of difficult for us to, I think, get access to, to cover that. Yeah. Uh, but what you wrote about is two Afghan men who uh, were arrested and are now detained at the Dane County Jail. Yeah. Tell us about the circumstances that uh, led them to be being detained. Well, they, they were both arrested and charged with serious crimes. One was uh, domestic abuse, a strangulation of a, a husband and wife, and the other one was a very serious allegation about the sexual abuse of children. And w- the reason why I wrote about this is because of th- the unprecedented, very unique circumstances that brought all 12,000 Afghanis basically overnight to Wisconsin. These two men, whether they're innocent or guilty, uh, face a very burdensome road to actually becoming, not not only just coming citizens, but even getting residency here in the United States. So if they're found innocent, there is the, it should, how it works out, they're separate uh, issues, the the immigration system versus their federal charges, right? But let's say um, they're found innocent. Well, uh, an immigration judge and, or immigration arbiters have an enormous amount of discretion and what they their criteria for granting permanent residency or other a pathway to citizenship, anything like that. So even if just the allegations could be enough to delay for years, one of these individuals or both of these individuals, if they're found innocent, their whole process. It was already a complicated process. And this just made it a lot complicated. Now, if they're found guilty, that presents another really impossible scenario. Right. You um, write about if they're convicted, uh, would they or would they not be deported? Um, And you even look to the U.N., Hey, I, the you uh, sure uh, yes. Well, normally, if you're convicted of an aggravated felony, uh, and you're applying to for residency in the country, you're gone. They deport you. But um, Afghanistan, uh, now run by the Taliban, is uh, a unique place in the world where the, the U.S. has signed on to an international treaty with the U.N. that they won't deport people back to countries that where there's a reasonable fear that they might be tortured. And since these Afghan men had obviously helped the U.S. government, they wouldn't have been here anyway. They're not, you could totally see how it would be reasonable for them to make the case that sending them back to Afghanistan is certain death or torture. So that means they could just be sitting in detention uh, after they serve their sentence for these federal crimes and be stuck in this legal limbo where one day they just get deported back to Afghanistan if things settle down there, and it just creates this impossible situation where they're lost through the cracks. Yeah. And, and, and I think what was really alarming to me is it's, uh, it may not happen, but it is a possibility that they could just be detained for who knows how long, and even after they serve their time if convicted. If convicted. Yeah. So that's kind of why I was explaining there, and I'm definitely following it up. And one thing that would sound in the story, but it's happened recently, is a plea deal was reached um, with the with the man who was accused of domestic abuse. He, that got changed to a, a guilty plea of um, disorderly conduct, right? So um, that probably makes it a little bit easier for him to get back on any sort of path towards citizenship, but it certainly complicates things. Um, we don't know exactly how um, the other the other individual how he will fare, and let's not forget too that there is an enormous challenge in just representing these two men. They speak a language uh, that there is no legal translators in Wisconsin who can translate for them. Yeah, so Pashto per- is the yes. is the language. There's not a single there's, legal there's translator. One guy in Minnesota who can do it, and so. How do you provide a fair representation 
to somebody when it is so challenging even to communicate the most basic legal um, information to them. Right. And legal representation, um, a, a legal translator is different than um, a usual translator, right? Oh, yeah. They have to be specially trained because they're, it's, that's a requirement of the federal government and, and for states and stuff like that. You need a legal translator who can be objective, obviously, and is, is vetted in that way. Yeah. So I thought this was a worthwhile story to write about just because these Afghanis came here for a better life, obviously. And we have supposedly a good justice system in this country. Um, but just due to the uncertainty of uh, being a refugee and or asylum seeker in this unique situation where you arrive here overnight very quickly, it was already tough to uh, make it a go here, right? Get permanent residency, find a job, et cetera. Now, um, these two men are not going to be serving lifelong sentences, but what happens to them? Nobody really had a good answer for me. And a lot. And one of the situations is that they just are detained after, for, after serving their sentence, and they just have to wait for what exactly? We don't know. It's a little bit like a Guantanamo Bay situation where they don't really have a status. Well, that's a note to end on. Dylan, but, thanks for talking with me. Thank you. I've been speaking with Isthmus senior reporter Dylan Brogan about several stories in the latest monthly edition of Isthmus newspaper. It's 647 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. In 2019, two graduate students created an exhibit entitled Intersections, Indigenous Textiles of the Americas. It was co-created by Indigenous scholars Kendra Greendeer and Dakota Mace and is on, disp and on display in Nancy Nicholas Hall on campus. Now, the exhibit closed in 2019 and currently lives on the Center for Design and Material Culture website. According to Mace, when they first proposed the idea of the exhibit, they approached it in a way that a lot of other museums and galleries would display indigenous objects, categorizing them by date, region, or material. However, students believed that using traditional Western and European standards diminished the meaning behind each piece in the exhibition. So they decided to start the exhibition by honoring their ancestors those who inspired them creatively, as well as a way as the way weaving has transitioned within the last thousand years. In this archival edition of Radio Chipstone, Green Deer and Mace share the intention of the exhibition with contributor Jennifer Fields. The conversation starts by first paying respect to and acknowledging the ancestors. For all of our known histories, indigenous cultures have honored and acknowledged those who came before them. Ancestors play a vital role in many indigenous knowledge systems, signifying the relationships we share through the ancestral knowledge held and passed down through cultural practices, use, and production of textiles. Uh, indigenous textile practices transmit the cultural knowledge systems of our ancestors through continued practice and creation. From one generation to the next, these practices carry an understanding and deep respect for our ancestors' beliefs, values, and stories through a profound, enduring interconnectedness to the lands we have nurtured for centuries, if not millennia. Talk to me about the decision to start this exhibit off with ancestors. Uh, so the reason why we wanted to start with ancestors was because we wanted to not only acknowledge our own history, but our elders and the people that came before us in the way that they've ins inspired us creatively, as well as the way that weaving has transitioned within the last, you know, thousand years. But for us, especially within indigenous communities, our ancestors are what we learn from and what we uh, reference back to with a lot of our knowledge systems. So for us to start with 
with ancestors, that was a push away from the way that a lot of museums would usually display objects that were before pre-contact and everything. Uh, so for within ancestors, we have um, objects that come from burial sites in Peru. And this was our way of not only acknowledging their presence, but also how they still have an impact on contemporary indigenous people today. Uh, so for us in this exhibition, we wanted to be able to be as sensitive as possible. So this is also, again, another thing that we wanted to include uh, for Indigenous people is that um, burial objects are uh, distinguished very differently in, very, in various Indigenous communities. So we wanted to put a sign up, and that is the reason why all of these objects are covered, is to give the audience the, the choice to view whether or not to view that object. So again, it's just a way of being knowledgeable for all Indigenous, uh, indigenous people, but to give that honor back as well. So Kendra, talk to me then about the aspect of allowing people to choose whether or not to view these objects. It's unusual when you walk into a museum setting that you get a choice whether or not you view something. Usually it's there, it's on display. What does the act, how does the act of my making a choice to view these objects influence or frame my experience? I think it can greatly impact a visitor's experience because most of the time you aren't given that opportunity um, until you are looking at an object to then realize that this is something very culturally significant that I probably shouldn't be looking at. And and I think NAGPRA has allowed for that to become more of an awareness and to separate some of these very significant objects from the rest of collections. So by covering these, we don't we want visitors to feel comfortable and welcomed and that their beliefs are also uh, valued in this space, a space that typically wouldn't cater to an indigenous perspective or even acknowledge that there might be different protocols or um, values associated with items associated with the dead. And um, so by... We just want everyone to have a good time. <laughs> <laughs> and to make a decision, right? You have a, yeah, you have a decision to make, I think, when you walk in here, and there are many decisions to make. But you mentioned something, Kendra, NEGPRA. What is that? Oh, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. There's two different ones, and the one that's, like, national, I believe, was 1991. And this allowed for culturally significant items to be repatriated back to the communities that they came from. This is the first time that I've been in an exhibit, I think, surrounded by this many objects that was constructed, that was written, that was researched by people from the culture that the objects come from. That's unusual. Oh, most definitely, and I'm hoping that that will become a standard across many museums as well, or at least collaborating more openly with the people that uh, are related to those objects. So in telling the stories, is there one Dakota that stuck out to you? Is there a part of this in the writing that surprised you? Yeah, uh, for the most part, a lot of these stories have become, I mean, these objects specifically have come very familiar to me. Uh, they feel very much like family or friends. Um, and not only because I've spent so much time with each and every object, but also learning about their histories and the reason why they have so much intention to the p groups that they represent. Um, and especially for me, I am Dene, so like all of the Dene objects in this exhibition, I've come really close and personal with and learning about not only my own history a little bit more, but also the way that these objects really impacted Dene people, but also the way that uh, a broader audience kind of views these objects. Is there, Dakota, a cue or are there elements of the objects that signify that it's Dene? Can it be cut back close? Uh, actually, it's not. And that was our, or at least my intention with this exhibition, especially the section called Stories, is that we have a lot of uh, 
connection in terms of similarities when it comes to designs and materials and Navajo textiles, Diné textiles, actually are probably the most well-known due to the fact that many people and artists were inspired by these designs, but it actually pops up in multiple indigenous communities. So if you look in the stories uh, section, you can see that not only were stars very prevalent in cultures, but also the colorway that we use for this exhibition is also especially important because we use natural colors and natural fibers, but you know it really impacts the way that indigenous people not only connect to ourselves, but also how we're a lot more interconnected. And that's something I think we wanted for our audience to be able to feel is that we're welcoming them into our community and wanting them to be inspired by it. A lot of it has been writing and rewriting a lot of um, museum standards that I'm used to. I had to reevaluate in order to approach this exhibition because it is finally about Native people, by Native people, and hopefully for Native people as well. (laughs) And um, so a lot of it has been rethinking our own terminologies and um, by beginning the exhibition with the panel ancestors, I mean, that makes it more personal to us because these are all of these objects that we've selected do have a huge, did have a huge effect on us while we were selecting. Um, And just acknowledging ancestors versus the pre-contact type of label that you would typically see in a museum or um, something related to the old or uh, the the primitive um, that would have been used in another museum setting. Like, we're just trying to break away from those patterns as well. For WORT, I'm Jennifer Fields. And that's a wrap for WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter tonight was Nate Carlin. Special thanks to feature contributors Jonathan Fields, Tom Kamenick, and Jonah Chester, and Dylan Brogan of Isthmus. Dylan Brogan also engineered tonight's show, and Ms. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. She also produced this newscast. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slate. And I'm Stacey Harbaugh. Stay up to date with WORT's local news. The news is available as a podcast wherever you subscribe. And be sure to download the WORT mobile app and listen to your favorite shows on the go. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and good night. W-O-R-T, Madison.